Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming. I admire all of you, your courage to get through the weather. This is uh, too many faint-hearted that weren't up with you, but I'm grateful that all of you could join us. Thank you very much for coming. I'm John Hamry, uh, the president here at CSIS, and when we do events with outside groups, we always start with a, a little safety announcement. So I'm responsible for everybody today. If anything happens, we'll hear a voice that'll say we've got to do something. Uh, this door right over here is the one that's closest to the stairs that'll take us down to the street level. We will take two left-hand turns and one right-hand turn. We'll go over to National Geographic and I will pay for everybody's ticket to see the new show on the Titanic. <laughs> what, it's a very interesting show. It, uh, it turns out uh, Discovery of the Titanic was actually a cover story for a special investigation we had. We were trying to find the scorpion. We'd lost the scorpion and so we, we started bringing these remarkable underwater autonomous vehicles together to find that, but we needed a cover story. So we found the Titanic. It's a fascinating show. So if we go over there, uh, you'll enjoy it very much. I don't think anything's going to happen. Um, we're delighted to have everybody here. And I, special words of welcome to Senator Warner. I, I admire him in so many different dimensions, but uh, this is one of the ones I have such great appreciation for his leadership because this is a, an underappreciated problem that we are facing. Uh, it's really Suzanne Spaulding that brought this to my attention and she partnered up with Harvey uh, to give us you know, the backing of the American Bar Association that brought us together to explore what are the vulnerabilities of the judicial system in America to the kind of disruption that we saw Russia going through against political channels. We think it is by far, it's a very remarkably vulnerable ecosystem. We know from things that Russia did in East Europe that they have actively targeted the judicial systems in other countries. Uh, and think about how corrosive that would be in America if we lost confidence in the fairness, the legitimacy of our judicial system. This is a big, big, big issue. And I'm so grateful that Harvey and Suzanne have been willing to lead on this. Uh, I want to say very special thanks to the, to the Hewlett Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and to the Democracy Fund for giving us the resources to be able to undertake this. We've been in dialogue with the uh, Judicial Center. We've uh, had conferences with federal judges to try to get their interest in this. Uh, but it is, an, uh, it is work we really desperately need to carry through on. And I'm so grateful, Senator Warner, you're willing to do that. Harvey, I'm going to turn to you uh, to introduce Senator Warner. And uh, you've been our partner at every step of the way. You've been a friend to me for so many years. And I would welcome you. Please come up and, and uh, let's get this started for real. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Harvey Rishikoff. I'm the chair of the advisory committee of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Um, I'm here representing the ABA, and uh, the senator actually addressed our organization about two weeks ago, and uh, his support has been extraordinary for us, and I want to thank him again for what he does. Um, I also want to thank John Hamry. I mean, John has been a force in this, in this town for a very long time, and John has a nose for issues that are going to be significant. He's sort of an intellectual hunter dog when it comes to this, and he's been leading CS with an extraordinary 
talent. And John, thank you so much for what you've been doing for us and what you do for the country. Uh, with Suzanne, which John mentioned, we've been uh, sort of going ahead with this project. The senator, as you know, is a graduate of George Washington University and Harvard Law School. He was an early investor in the cellular telephone industry. He co-founded the company that eventually became Nextel. He invested in hundreds of startups and tech companies during his more than 20 years in both technology and business. He has served as the Virginia's governor from 202 to 206 during that period. Uh, Virginia was rated as one of the outstanding states for both business and publication, public education in the country. Um, he is currently a member of the Finance Banking Budget and Rules Committee, but most important for us today, he is also a member of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, where he has served since 2011 when he became the vice chairman in 2017. Um, the Senator is known, I think, for both willing to go to deep dives into tough, complicated issues and for working on a bipartisan basis. These are extraordinarily useful qualities given his leadership of the Senate Intelligence Committee today as it's conducted a number of investigations and in Russian interference in the 2016 election. But I think the Senator is particularly known uh, as someone who has been sorting innovation and analysis. I, I commend to you his paper on the 20 political policy proposals for regulation of the social media and tech firms. It's major to three buckets. It's uh, combating disinformation. And he looks at section 230 and talks about how to go about thinking through about how to reform that. Protecting um, user uh, privacy. He mentions the GDPR and talks about how the United States should be shaping this. And finally, the last bucket is promoting uh, competition in the tech center. Uh, the paper is very, very thoughtful. I do a lot of reading in this area, and it's probably one of the more interesting proposals he's put out. And our hope is that he'll be able to turn that perhaps into legislation. But under his leadership uh, with Chairman uh, Richard Burr and Vice Chairman Warner, the Senate Intelligence Committee has already held, as I said, a number of activities. And I think today we're going to have a speech a talk from the Senator and then a moderated discussion with Suzanne. So with that, please join me in welcoming the Senator. Harvey, thank you for that uh, kind introduction. Thank you for being interested in this um, critically important subject for all the good work you do with the, the Bar Association. Um, thanks again. I think John has already stepped out, but to CSIS for one more time hosting me on a subject that is uh, near and dear to my heart, nearer and dearer than I would have ever assumed it to be. And again, um, my great thanks to my dear, dear friend Suzanne Spaulding, who uh, um, came up af in the aftermath of the Russian election interference, realized that this assault on our institutions was not confined by any means to our election system uh, or to the run-of-the-mill politics that passes, but also that most of our institutions uh, were vulnerable to this new level of attack in an interconnected world, and I commend very much um, her good work and look forward to the chance when I'm done with some opening comments to actually turn this into a, a full conversation. Um, what I thought I'd try to do today is give you a little bit of sense of kind of here we are now two years after the 2016 elections, what we know, what we don't know, where we stand in light of the fact that we've just completed midterms uh, on a few critical issues, and uh, I think where this debate 
where this debate goes from here. Um, let me start with what we know what happened in terms of what happened on 2016. And just uh, for those of you who are here or who are watching online, um, if you're thinking I'm going to give away the, the real answers and all the goods today, uh, not going to be the case. But, um, you know, what we do know is, uh, and I say this in a bipartisan way, um, because it is the absolute consensus of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which um, not only is bipartisan, but when we've got a committee that on the Democratic side includes folks like Ron Wyden and Kamala Harris, and on the Republican side, people like Tom Cotton and John Cornyn, we really span the, the ideological divide that makes up the United States Senate. And so the fact that um, we have consensus on uh, four of the five topics that our investigation is looking into, the fifth one being where the jury is still out around the issues of collusion, um, but in terms of the other four items, we have, we have total agreement. I think it's a, a significant statement, and I want to give kudos to my chairman, Richard Burr, for his kind of collaborative effort. So what do we know? We know, one, that in 2016, Russia, in an unprecedented way, massively interfered in our elections in a way that was better organized, better coordinated, and frankly, with a set of tools um, that caught our political system, our legal system, and in many ways our intelligence community totally off guard. How do they, how do they make that interference? Again, it took three forms. First, um, they basically weaponized information that they had stolen through cyber activities. Now, you know, it's not news that countries spy on each other. It's not news that countries um, try to obtain uh, facts about their um, potential adversaries. What was different in 2016 was the fact that Russia, the Russian services and both their direct spy services and in many ways some of the activities that were outsourced uh, to a third party entity called the Internet Research Agency, the Russian services found ways to penetrate both the Democratic and the Republican Party. What they did, though, as opposed to normal spying, where they would get that information and hold it for potential compromise, hold that for, for potential use down the line, they immediately weaponized that information and uh, in a way that was geared to try to help then-candidate Trump and hurt then-candidate Clinton. Um, they broke into, obviously, the Democratic Party. They broke into key advisors that were advising um, uh, then-candidate Clinton. And in a way that was about as politically well-timed as anything we've seen in modern American politics, they released that information to its maximum benefit, again, to help Trump and to hurt Clinton. Second thing they did was they tested or broke into at least 21 of our state's electoral systems. And in many ways, they left behind what was, I think what uh, I'm, I'm surmising right now, but um, what became, I think, fairly clear was we didn't fully appreciate how vulnerable our election systems were. And I think the Russians probably realized in terms of jiggling the door or looking in on the voter files or seeing, peering into our systems, uh, I almost believe that uh, they were astounded to see how open and vulnerable these systems were. Uh, I actually think in certain ways they left behind so much digital dust 
uh, to indicate they didn't try to hide their exploitation of these 21-plus states' electoral systems with the assumption they could use that information after the fact if conventional wisdom had won out and Trump had lost and Clinton had won, uh, the digital dust that would, be, would have remained would have been used by the Russian propaganda machine to, in a sense, again, make Americans question the legitimacy of our election system. But the penetration of at least 21 states and frankly more uh, of, our, of our election systems. And the third thing they did was they massively manipulated our social media platforms in ways that, as I mentioned again at the outset, caught the intelligence community and caught the, the platform company, frankly, off guard. Uh, here had been this whole new means of communication uh, around social media. I think both political parties had, in a sense, lionized the Googles and the Facebooks and the Twitters and you know, pointed out all the wonderful ability uh, these companies have to connect individuals in, in remarkable ways. Um, both parties were leaned in very positive on the enterprises. Uh, what no one had really pointed out prior to 2016 was that these same tools that could bind people together could also be manipulated to turn people's fears against one another. Um, the effectiveness of, of this effort and the cheapness of this effort uh, from the Russian standpoint was, you know, if you were rating on a 1 to 10 scale, at least had to be an 8 out of 10. Um, because I, I like to point out that in, in the in many ways we should have been more aware of this threat. If you added up all of the resources the Russians spent intervening in our election, if you added on all they spent intervening in the French elections, where frankly um, the French government was more aware, it was further on down the line, and the, the social media companies were, for, for example, more active in working with the government to try to, um, to stop Russian intervention. And if you add up as well uh, what the Russians spent on the Brexit vote, and at first the British were reluctant to kind of acknowledge they had a problem, now they have their own independent bipartisan commission as well looking into to Russian foreign activities. So if you add up what they spent in American, French, in British elections combined, it was less than the cost of one new F-35 airplane. So as we think through this from a, a geopolitical and national security issue, here in America, and I see uh, you know, men and women of our armed, armed forces here, you know, where we spent $716 billion in America on our defense budget this past year, and we look at Russia spending only $70 billion, I sometimes worry whether we are buying the world's best 20th century military stuff when frankly most of the conflict in the 21st century may very well be in the domains of cyber and misinformation and disinformation. And those two domains, Russia is our peer already. So um, where, you know, that's what we, we know happened. Where do we go from here? A couple of, a couple of comments. First, um, while I'm very proud of our, our um, bipartisan investigation, and we've still got more work to do, more witnesses to see. Uh, in many ways, the questions around collusion, while we will reach our conclusions, a lot of the action on, on um, uh, this front has really moved to the special prosecutor's investigation. The special prosecutor has uh, enormous additional tools, more than we have. They have obviously the ability to, to bring people into the criminal justice system. And for an investigation, the special prosecutor, it seems like it's been forever, but it really has been only about a year and a half. He, Mueller wasn't appointed until spring of, of 2017. And for lawyers in the room, 
Carvey and Suzanne, you know, the, the notion that a year and a half investigation has already secured six guilty pleas and over 30 indictments is a fairly substantial piece of work. And my hope is that Mueller will come out with more of his findings shortly. But one of the most important things we need to do is we need to make sure, particularly now post midterms, particularly now with a president who seems more and more unleashed, that we protect the integrity of the Mueller investigation and allow it to finish its work. Now, most of my Republican colleagues in the Senate have said, of course, the president wouldn't fire. Um, Mueller wouldn't interfere. Of course, these were the same folks who said that he wouldn't fire Jeff Sessions as, as Attorney General. Um, but I think it's really, really important uh, that the investigation conclude, that it not be interfered by this acting Attorney General, and that all of my Republican colleagues who, almost to a person, have uniformly been on record saying Mueller needs to finish his job, we need to um, put a little more teeth behind that and go ahead and pass legislation protecting the special prosecutor. Uh, and if not that, make sure at least um, that his, his activities are protected through the duration of that investigation. Second thing we have to um, recognize is um, uh, the value of this investigation and getting the truth out. Mueller and frankly, uh, our investigation as well. It was fairly unique. There's been a obviously a big story that came out in the New York Times in the last 24 hours indicating you know, what Facebook knew and when they knew it and what their intent was. Um, it was pretty, one of the things that was pretty remarkable about that story, one was the fact of how Facebook was totally dismissive for literally months on end that there was any there there in terms of Russian manipulation uh, and refused to acknowledge the problem and for a long time after the fact thought that if they, that we in Congress and others would simply go away. But one of the most um, stunning items, and I think that an area that warrants, warrants at least further explanation from the company is, at the very moment when Facebook's senior leadership was coming before our committee, this is not in the case of when Zuckerberg testified, but more when Ms. Sandberg testified, when they were coming before our committee and trying to claim that they had seen the error of their ways, and that they were ready to work with the committee on rules of the road going forward. At the very same time they were doing that, they had hired political opposition firms to try to undermine the credibility of the committee members themselves. Um, this is not the actions of a company that understands both the threat and the challenge, and candidly, the responsibility they, they bear to all of us. The third thing that, that in, in putting some of this in context, is the actions that Russia took in 2016, in any kind of historical retrospective, you know, we shouldn't have been caught so off guard. As my colleague Mike Pesner, who works with me on the Senate Intelligence Committee, pointed out, back in 2011, the equivalent of the, the, equivalent of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Russia, General Germazov, wrote the Russian 21st century military doctrine, where he said at that time that Russia could not compete with the West in terms of purchasing guns and tanks and ships, but in the realm of cyber and misinformation and disinformation, they could be our peers. And the truth was what happened in 2016 in America, Russia had practiced on its own people, had practiced on its Baltic neighbors, had practiced on the Ukraine for years prior to 2016. Matter of fact, in the aftermath of, of um, uh, the 2016 incursion, uh, Odie and I Coates was at a NATO meeting 
and asked of the, what, 28, 29 members of NATO, how many of those nations had seen evidence of Russian interference in either their politics or their election system. It was unanimous. Every country involved in NATO had seen Russian activity and malfeasance in their system. And um, um, one of the things we acted on, I thought it would be a good idea to um, bring together parliamentarians from other countries who had been victims of, of Russian aggression, propaganda-wise, social media-wise, cyber-wise, and uh, sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. Uh, we ended up with participation of about 15 nations, including Canada, the UK, um, the French, the Italians, the Ukrainians, the uh, Estonians, Latvians. And the irony was the day we convened here in Washington with our allies to discuss this common threat from a foreign power like Russia was the very day that Trump was meeting with Putin in, in Helsinki. So it was a bit surreal with other parliamentarians talking about Russian intervention, seeing a president of the United States kowtow to a Russian dictator and basically accept the whole Russian line of argument when every one of these parliamentary figures would testify to the fact that what had happened in America had also happened in their countries as well. So one of the things I think on a going forward basis and why this CSIS's involvement and others is, you know, to confront this new challenge, we need strong allies. We need an alliance amongst um, the West writ large to realize this new potential threat in the domains of cyber and misinformation, disinformation. Sometimes those activities are hindered in terms of building alliances when you have a White House that goes out and calls Canada a national security threat, but uh, a president that kowtows to Vladimir Putin, that somehow seems a little out of whack in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of perspectives, but if we're going to get this right on a going forward basis, um, we have to make sure that this is not seen as simply Russia versus America, but is, is really um, defense of freedom of information, defense of a free press, defense of electoral systems, because at the end of the day, one of the things that's clear, while the Russians had a preference for Putin over Clinton in 2016, at the end of the day, the Russians are not an advocate of one American political party over another. The Russians are advocates of undermining the West's faith in democratic election systems, and frankly, both for external use, but also for domestic use to be able to point out failings in our system so they can point to the Russian people and say, hey, you see, these Western elections, not so good, not so much better than ours. You know, that's why you need to stay and believe in this system. Um, so I'd like to take those three areas before we move to our conversation in terms of uh, the cyber attack, the election systems, and social media, and give you at least my view of where we are uh, a, week after, a week after the midterms. First, in terms of our cyber protections, uh, and what we saw in terms of Russian interference in, in 2018. Um, first, we have gotten better. Uh, I think the government is more aware. I think uh, our intelligence services are, are more 
active in terms of monitoring. I know NSA, CIA, our domestic agencies are all much on much higher alert. Um, I think we've tried to spread the word about better cyber hygiene, but I would remind people that even in this 2018 election cycle, we've seen evidence that campaigns were hacked. Claire McCaskill's campaign, for example, the Democratic senator who was up for re-election in Missouri, indicated there was Russian interference. We've seen the uh, indictments coming out of the Mueller investigation of individuals of of Russian descent who were both active in 2016 and 2018 in terms of cyber activities. So we have gotten better, uh, but we are by no means uh, in a place where we are, are fully protected. And if anything, we've seen that the Russian playbook that was outlined in 2016, its cheapness and effectiveness has now been copied by China, Iran, and potentially other adversaries. Uh, we also know that the most, one of the most vulnerable spots we have is in cyber hygiene around campaigns. You know, campaigns by their very nature are startup enterprises. They raise a lot of money, spend a lot of money, you don't have normal protocols, and one of the things that I think we, we need in terms of campaign 101 in terms of the 2020 election cycle is to make sure that cyber protection, cyber hygiene is kind of built into the fabric of, of every campaign on a going forward basis. Um, we also, and I want, one area I do want to give uh, credit to the administration for is, I think that for a long time in the cyber domain, this would be the subject of a, a different talk at a different time, is we have lacked a cyber doctrine in America since 2000. So this is a critique I would make of the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and one area where I would give some credit to um, the Trump administration because they have changed their executive order about the willingness of America to use its cyber capabilities both on a defense and offensive capability. Because for too long with our focus on counterterrorism and our focus oftentimes on Iran and North Korea, we have ignored the, the reemergence of a near-peer adversary like Russia and the emergence of China to the point where it's been open season in terms of these nations either interfering in our elections is the case of Russia, stealing our intellectual property in the case of China, and, and doing so with no fear of retribution from the United States. We desperately need an articulated cyber doctrine where there are norms, hopefully international norms, across the way so that we can you know, respond as need be. Um, we need to do that on an international basis. Uh, and this is, again, one area where I give the administration some credit. So in terms of so far, uh, the kind of blatant weaponization of information that took place in 2016 and 2018, we didn't see the, that take place. On elections, what have we done? What have we done right? What have we done wrong? Well, in our election systems, people often point out the fact that our systems are, are safer because virtually no machines are actually connected to the Internet. That's true. Um, but there are three points of vulnerability in our election system. One and this is an area where I think we still remain extraordinarily vulnerable, and that is where the voter files reside most of the time. There are three companies in America that control 95% of all the voter files. We have virtually no visibility. They're private companies. We have virtually no visibility into the security at those three companies. Now, I think there are ways short of 
government interference uh, or government regulation to have independent researchers or independent commissions look at making sure that these voter files are safe, but we have no ability to make sure that there was not malware placed at some point or another on the voter files in a way that guarantees uh, their safety. Because at the end of the day, you don't need to change votes. All you need to do is change a few thousand folks, well, precinct levels, so that when they go to vote, uh, they're, they're not on the rolls. So voter files is one area where uh, I think we need improvement. Second area is at the machine level. Um, and at the machine level, we have made improvements. DHS has put a, um, a system in place that monitors virtually all of the machines. Uh, I, I really feel quite bad for, frankly, the, the folks at DHS who are trying their hardest to do the best job possible in a normal world in a normal administration, in an era when it comes to voting where you have a, it's mostly a state and local responsibility and only a little bit federal and there is great pushback about over federal involvement. In a normal administration after the attack that we saw in 2016, a normal president would have appointed someone at the White House level to be in charge of voter security. Because it can only be that White House convening power that can bring these disparate groups to the table. This White House not only did not appoint an election security top-level official at the White House, but they actually eliminated the cybersecurity position at the White House. Completely the wrong direction. So Congress, and this is a case where we did put some points on the board, put out $380 million um, that were sent out to states to try to improve their security, and we have actually waiting a Secure Elections Act bipartisan legislation that would have would require both one to make sure that every voting station polling place in America had a paper ballot backup so that even if you were able to penetrate the system there would be some record behind in the aftermath and put in place a system to come in after an election and audit the results to make sure that uh, how we can improve on a going forward basis that legislation I believe would get 90 votes in the Senate this White House has prevented it from even coming up in front of the Rules Committee. And as we think now through um, you know, challenges and recounts in states like Georgia and Florida, I think the overall trust in our voting system would be much higher if we passed this kind of legislation and we knew, for example, that there was a paper ballot audit trail behind. I know it was concerned enough to me that in 2017 uh, I made sure that Virginia changed out all its old machines and that we had that paper trail around every system. We need to make that further progress going forward. DHS has tried, but when you've got a White House that's still in denial, it makes it more difficult. The third area around elections is the question of the tabulation. And again, here we've made some, some progress. So in terms of overall election security, I think we are better off, much better off than they were in 2016. We've seen no evidence to date of, of uh, uh, Russian activity, um, but what I will, I will, um, what I am most fearful of over these next couple of weeks, particularly if the recounts in Florida and Georgia play out over time, and particularly if you continue to see the White House make unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud, uh, I think you will, I would expect to see a great deal of heightened activity from foreign-based bots and other active activity trying to 
lend credence to this, hey, you shouldn't trust the elections, or there's fraud going on, or, you know, Representing in many ways what you have at this point uh, with the president making these unsubstantiated claims is you have the president basically echoing the Russian propaganda playbook, which is again at the end of the day to undermine our faith in our democratic system. So progress made on, on election security, progress made on the question around uh, protecting our country in terms of cyber attacks. More, more needs to be done at both the voter file and um, a, making sure we've got an auditable paper trail uh, behind all the voting system. Third and final area, and then we, we can move to um, the discussion, and that's the question around social media. Um, this was an area that was, uh, uh, we were wrong when we started. Um, I presumed at first, when it first became evident that the Russians were manipulating social media, that the way they would have manipulated was through paid political advertising. And to a degree, they did do some. Uh, Facebook, uh, Russians spent about $150,000 on Facebook ads, $100,000 on Twitter ads, lesser extent on, on Google. But the paid advertising was really not where the action was. The paid advertising was only something to kind of push already existing traffic. Where most of the activity that took place in 2016 and where we have to be careful about going forward is the ability for Russians or other entities to create fake accounts where they try to identify themselves as Americans and then normally don't go out and start a blog on a political subject, but instead go out and start and build a following based upon whether you're an Alabama football fan or a fan of gardening or a fan of cooking and um, build up a base and then slowly seed that, those fake accounts with propaganda. We know already that um, uh, the Russian activities in 2016 um, touched about 160 million Americans out of just out of Facebook. Uh, Google, or I mean Twitter has got, um, frankly, we're still trying to get the exact numbers, but it's in excess of 100 million. And one of the most disappointing companies' reactions has been Google, which for a long time tried to keep its head down and think it was going to escape scrutiny. Uh, but as more and more evidence came out, one, the fact that they even failed to show up for our hearing, but two, as we've increasingly seen that one of the tools that Russians, or for that matter, foreign agents, or for that matter, people who want to try to radicalize individuals over the internet, YouTube may be the best vehicle of all. And we have not seen the level of cooperation that we need, uh, particularly from Google, but from all three of the social media companies. So where, as was mentioned before, I've laid out, and the good news in this area is none of this falls into Democratic-Republican territory when we think about what ought to be the guardrails around social media. It really is much more in the context of future versus past. And the white paper that I laid out really broke into three sections, and I'll just briefly touch on them, and then, as I said, we'll move to the discussion with Suzanne. First is, and, and let me back up for a moment for, and say, in this arena, the fact that, and in and, and, and a whole host of areas around technology, and that was my background, has been mentioned. We've grown up, or I've grown up in a world where America was always the leader in technological innovation. America was then always the leader in terms of policy innovation that followed that technological innovation. In so many areas, not just around social media, but in so many areas, uh, artificial intelligence, 5G, quantum computing, we are losing that, that advantage. And our failure to act to set policy means that we are defaulting 
to other entities. And this is obviously the case in the realm of social media. The three areas that I think we need to look at, one is privacy. Um, what rights do we have as users of social media to have our information protected, to be able to, in a sentence, be delisted, um, to have some levels of privacy. Matter Because one of the things I find unique in America is that we all have appropriate concerns about how much the government may know about us. But I can assure you, if you are an active user of Facebook or Google, those companies know a lot more about you than the United States government. Uh, yet we don't seem to have those same concerns about these enterprises. So we have seen, as been mentioned, the Europeans put together GDPR, which is a host of privacy policies. Some good ideas in that bucket, some I think that are a little bit clunky, um, and I think there will be an a, um, active privacy debate. I will have some legislation in this field, and I'll have in all three of these buckets, uh, but that is kind of the, one of the first areas that, that uh, we can get into. Second area, which I think may be um, more timely, and GDPR touches part of this, uh, at least indirectly, indirectly, and that is the question of identity validation. The reason why the Russians and others were so successful using social media was they could create a fake persona and, and then people would follow that persona based upon the assumption that the, the individual was who they said they were as opposed to a foreign entity. So I've laid out, for example, two or three ideas in this realm that I think are worthy of debate. One. I think we should have a right when we're on social media to know when we're contacted, whether we're being contacted by a human being versus a machine. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with being contacted by a bot. But I think if we had that indicator, it would be one place where we could then start to discriminate about what we want to believe, choose to believe or not, if we knew it was a human being versus a machine. And matter of fact, and, and we're trying to run down this data, that one of the experts in this field, John Kelly, uh, who works for Graphica, put out information that said that if you look at political content on the web in America, on the far left and the far right, it says it's about 25 to 1 foreign-based bots over actual Americans. In a certain sense, that made me feel really good because it means there's not as many crazies out there as it seems. But we really need to determine that. And that notion of at least having an indicator coming up saying it's a bot versus a human being would be one area. Second area is, should we have some level of geocoding? Now, this gets harder when you have messages, when you have the cloud. But if somebody says they're Suzanne posting from Northern Virginia and the post originates in St. Petersburg, Russia, maybe you ought to have that indication. And third is we, you know, we may at least need to start the discussion about, um, uh, you know, can you still maintain anonymity on the web? You know, will there end up, will we default, and I'm not by any means proposing this is where we ought to end up, but will we default into where there's almost two internets where one, you can be anonymous and go to the dark web and do whatever, but in the area of commerce and transactions, you've got to validate your identity. And we already have examples, Estonia being one country, where the overwhelming amount of Russian interference in all of their affairs was so great that their country made the decision that the only way they participate on the web is if they had identity validation. So the whole question is about identity. Third area um, that I think we'll look at is, is around competition. And um, I'll again just uh, point out uh, two areas for consideration. One is, I was, an, I was in the wireless industry, and it used to be really hard 
back in the dark old days in the 1980s to actually move from one telephone company to another uh, for your provider. We then mandated something called number portability. Well, we might want to think about mandating the same thing for the internet, data portability. You, you should make it easy if you want to move all of your Facebook files, including your cat videos, from one platform to another. Right now, it's virtually impossible. They say it's easy, baloney. Try to get your Google activities, your Facebook activities, your Twitter activities, and see how hard it is to try to move them to a different platform. If you had data portability, along with interoperability, so you could still talk to your friends at the remaining, the, the old platform, you could perhaps induce a whole new set of competition into an area where people would opt in to platforms where they had a greater level of protection. The even more important issue, and one that I think uh, where there's, again, potentially a market-based um, solution, and, and that is around more transparency. The thing about Google and Facebook and Twitter, most Americans say, oh my gosh, isn't this great? These are free services. They're not free. They are giant sucking sounds of sucking out personalized information about each and every one of us that then the companies go out and market and sell to advertisers. There's nothing, again, inherently wrong with that. But shouldn't we have a right to know how many pieces of data that Facebook has about each of us? And if we had that data portability and we combined that with price transparency, if we knew that Suzanne's data was worth $18 a month to Facebook and Gary's data was worth $20 and my data was worth $25. If we had that pricing transparency, I believe there would be competitors that would come in and in effect offer you that level of safeguard. They take a piece of that revenue and say, we'll protect you even if the platform company won't do it. Matter of fact, there's going to be legislation proposed this year in California that I think will get the platform company's attention that says that they're going to call the legislation, you are the product, that would say no matter how many times you click I agree on these forms you never read that pop up on your phone, you would never have the right to give up all your rights and you would be granted 25% of all the revenue that was made off of your personal data. Again, I'm not sure that's a fully thought through solution set, but boy, it's going to get some people's attention in terms of how we shake up um, uh, this new establishment. My hope, again, would be as we go into this conversation, as we, we know that these companies are enormously powerful, and as I've said before, I don't want to kneecap American innovation. I don't want to have Facebook and, and Google replaced by Alibaba and, Ta uh, and Badu and Tencent. But these companies need to realize with great power comes great responsibility. So far, they have not acknowledged that. Uh, I do think that uh, policymakers will have to step in. Um, for all of the companies who said, we're welcome for um, some level of guidelines and regulation, uh, I'm going to put them to the test uh, come, this year, uh, come next year. Um, and I look forward to the conversation I'm about to have with Suzanne and your ideas as well. Final comment is just this. We have gotten through kind of 2018 so far, I think pretty well, but anyone that presumes that this problem is going away, I think misses the point. I go back to my initial comment when I said Russian intervention in America, Britain, and France is less than the cost of one new F-35 airplane. This is the world we live in. This kind of threat from cyber to misinformation, disinformation is not going to go away. Uh, I think we can overcome it. 
I think we can wrestle with it. I do think it's going to take more than just an American-only response, um, but it starts with informing the public. That's my job and, and part of the Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation. That's Bob Mueller's job to make sure that he can point out whether the collusion or contacts did amount to collusion. Um, and both of us ought to be allowed to finish our job, and I look forward now to moving to the conversation with Suzanne. Thank you very much. Terrific, Senator. Thank you very much. Are the microphones on? Yes, great. Terrific. Um, so you have, as you noted, uh, managed to sustain a bipartisan serious investigation on, in the Senate with uh, Chairman Burr. And, uh, but I'm wondering if you feel as though uh, that will be affected at all by the recent elections. Uh, uh, change of just a few seats in the Senate, and certainly a potential for a fairly significant change on the House side uh, in terms of the, uh, the dynamic over there. Do you think any of that will have an impact on your investigation? Well, I think we've, we've seen you know, 140 plus, plus or minus uh, witnesses. Many of the, the individuals who are still key are the people that are either have been charged or pled guilty with the Mueller investigation, and some of the people who maybe kind of beyond our reach, Russian-Americans who um, are kind of in a murky area. Um, I don't think it will change dramatically. I got to give Richard Burr a lot of credit. There was enormous pressure, I think, put on him by certain allies of this White House to kind of follow the House's lead and, you know, shut down the investigation and say there's no there there. Uh, he's, been, he's been good about us staying to our, staying to our, 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 um, our charge. You know, my responsibility is, as the House becomes democratic and they start their own investigation, is to keep ours kind of on that same tenor of we got to follow the facts and whatever the facts lead us to, we need then to, to bring that out to the American public. And uh, one of the things, and I shared this when we were with the ABA recently at an earlier presentation, I think a lot of politics, my view of politics is it's about 60% policy and it's about 40% personal trust, and you've got to trust your partners. And I think he trusts me and I trust him, and I think most of our committee believes that we're trying to do the right thing, and my hope will be that it won't be dramatically affected. Great. I do think as well, my hope would be, particularly since there's gonna be a change in the House, and I have no, you know, the greatest mystery of all in the last 18 months, and I give credit to Mr. Mueller, is that that, that investigation has been so leak-free um, but my plea would be, and my hope would be, that Mueller could conclude most of his work, at least, uh, before the House changes hands. Because my fear is, uh, if it drags too long, you know, the conspiracy theorists will all come out of the woodwork and say, um, um, make accusations that aren't true. So my hope is that we would see um, product from Mr. Mueller sooner rather than later. Well, and I know you mentioned, uh, you know, how important you think that investigation is and your concerns about uh, that investigation, particularly in light of uh, changes at the Department of Justice and the legislation that's been introduced to try to protect that investigation. What do you think are the prospects for that legislation? Well, it's, it's ironic that, that um, it came out of the Judiciary Committee broadly bipartisan, and the majority leader, Mr. McConnell, said, well, you know, he doesn't see any way that Trump would ever get rid of Mueller, and so we don't need the 
we don't need the, uh, the legislation. Well, that notion that he is not obsessed about Mueller, you only have to look at the president's daily tweetage to realize that this is front of mind, the fact that he you know, didn't even let a 24-hour period pass before he eliminated um, uh, Attorney General Sessions. And if he wanted to just get rid of Sessions, he could have very easily put in a, the Deputy Attorney General. Deputy Attorney General Rob Rosenstein could have moved into that position, would have been, um, you know, had already been Senate confirmed. Instead, for him to take someone who seems like his biggest asset has been that he is a Trump loyalist really concerns me. So my hope would be that, that most of, and I think Mr. Whitaker's got extraordinary conflicts that, um, both in terms of what he said about the Mueller investigation and his activities with the, uh, one of the individuals who's been um, at least a, of great interest to the Mueller investigation. Um, my hope would be that the Office of Judicial Ethics would urge Mr. Whitaker to recuse himself. And if not, all of my Republican colleagues who've said, uh, I think almost to a person, they think Mueller should be able to be continued, so he should be able to finish his, the job, let them go ahead then and you know, vote aye in terms of this uh, legislation protecting the special prosecutor. So uh, you gave us a great uh, walkthrough of what happened in the 2016 election and your sense of what went on in the 2018 election. Of course, we're, we're seeing Russian-affiliated uh, social media accounts and those that push Russian narratives already. Uh, they were jumping in even before the elections on, on uh, divisive issues like inciting the fear around the caravan coming up uh, through Mexico, but as since the election, as, as you alluded to, with pushing uh, hashtags like stop the steal, uh, you know, uh, and pushing uh, old stories uh, about, you know, 20,000 non-U.S. citizens on rolls in Miami, which were later corrected, but are now being pushed again. Um, how do we begin to build public resilience uh, against that kind of messaging, particularly in a situation like this where we, we know what's happening, we can anticipate that it will pick up steam uh, as these close elections uh, you know, kind of drag out? Great question. Um, one of the single most frustrating things I find in politics these days is when I come, come across somebody and we're having a discussion about an item and somebody says, well, I read it on the internet. Just because you read it on the internet didn't mean that Moses brought it down on the tablets. Um, you know, so this notion of, of, you know, part of our education system on a going forward basis has to be, you know, technological literacy and democracy so that people become better discerners of information. I mean, again, it's easy for me to say, well, I grew up when there were three TV channels and one newspaper, and you believed them all. You know, if you're a young person today, the, the, just the volume of information sources you have beating on you is, is really, really a challenge. And I think, you know, there are things we can learn. I, I, I think Sweden, um, which was very concerned about Russian interference, did a, my understanding, I'd like to learn more, did a pretty good job in advance of their elections recently, and elections even in Sweden where they, the country moved fairly far to the right in terms of educating its citizenry about being able to spot, um, you know, fake news or false information or foreign intervention. That's why, again, I think identity validation, why I think um, questions of uh, being contacted by a human versus a bot, although even that is not as easy as it seems. If I send you 
an email at midnight and know you go to bed at 10 o'clock, so have my email program to send at 6 o'clock in the morning. Is that a human being sending it to you or a bot? So none of this is easy as first blush, but I think having geo-indicators, bot indicators, other things so that people become a little more discerning um, are steps in the right direction. But I think, I don't think anyone has figured this out entirely, and it ought to be the subject of, frankly, more work from think tanks, uh, from educational institutions, because uh, I could obviously see this problem get worse before it gets better. Uh, and, you know, I, again, one of the areas um, that I think we'll, we'll be anxious to see whether Facebook is willing to stand by its words. When Ms. Sandberg testified before our committee, I raised the issue of what's happening in Miramar, where the government there is basically putting out Facebook posts encouraging its citizens to go kill their neighbors if they're Rohingya, if they're Muslims. And I said, well, does Facebook have a moral and legal responsibility to take down some of those sites? Because they would argue, you know, kind of getting nerdy here, well, you know, they have no editorial review with the exemptions called Section 230. But I give Ms. Sandberg credit. She said she thought they had both a moral and legal obligation um, to remove that kind of over-the-top hate speech. Uh, I think you know, this gets into a dicey area, uh, but I think we are going to have to put some um, parameters down there and simply waiting for self-regulation for the companies to you know, uh, determine that without any guidance. And you know, perhaps it could be set by even by, it doesn't have to be governmental entities, it could be outside researchers. There's a variety of ways to um, thread this needle, but thread it we need to, ha we need to do. Well, and, and you talk about the incitement to violence in Myanmar, but um, we also see, you know, part of what we're trying to get across is that uh, while everyone is focused on Russian interference in the elections, that their campaign against democracy, as you noted, started long before the 2016 elections. This is part of a long-term campaign to undermine democracy, uh, much beyond elections. It didn't stop after uh, those elections, and it and it goes and it's broader than simply interfering in the elections. And so, the project that I'm leading here at CSIS on defending democratic institutions is doing a deep dive on the ways in which Russia is trying to undermine and erode confidence in the judicial system, but really thereafter uh, all of our institutions. And and they do that in large part, as we know, by pouring gasoline on flames of division that engulf social media. And that division on social media we have seen can incite violence in our own country. Absolutely. And, and what we've seen so far, you know, in, in a certain way, if, I think we'll look back at 2016 and realize how kind of primitive or crude the tactics were with any kind of historical reflection. Because in a way, what happened in 2016, you take the cyber attacks where they hacked into people's personal information and weaponized it. That, dom that attack, cyber attack, was really totally separate, may have even been separate branches of the, the Russian enterprise from the social media attack, which was, again, falsely representing who you are. Where I see the battle merging by 2020 is when you merge cyber and misinformation and disinformation together. What do I mean by that? I mean that foreign power, foreign government, bad guys of any color or hue, <coughs> use a cyber tool where they hack into 
a company like Equifax, and by the way, we're a year after the Equifax hack, 150 million Americans personalized information in it with a company that none of us chose to be customers of. And that company has paid zero penalty. Its stock went down for a little bit, but then came back up. There's been no, FTC's got an investigation, but there's been no sanction, there's no liability, which we've got legislation to try to fix, but um, you know, it ultimately will be fixed because we'll have some horrific event take place. But somebody will hack into a data file where they receive personal information about all of us. Contact us with that personal information that you open because it knows Suzanne Spaulding's mother's name. And instead of getting a post from Mark Warner, you get a live stream video using what's called deep fake technology of a visual image of a politician, of a judge, of a religious figure, of a business leader. And you will have make the manipulation that took place in 2016 and 2018 look like child's play. And frankly, probably won't even be in politics at the first round. The ability to move markets you know, if you got to, if you had information and you got to 500 major money managers and um, you, you suddenly got a, a deep fake video of Jay Powell making a supposed announcement that was not true, or I wonder even with Facebook what would say if, if you know, Mark Zuckerberg's image suddenly appeared uh, announcing radical changes in Facebook's um, policies that wasn't Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, you know, then you're going to see action take place. But that merger of cyber and misinformation is where the battle's going to move. And I, I should have noted at the outset that you all should have cards on your seats, and uh, you should be thinking now of the questions that you would like uh, for me to pose to Senator Warner, and when you write them on that card and then just hold it up and the staff will, will collect them and we'll, we'll ask them at the end here. Um, uh, you know, the reference to deep fakes and, and the emerging with cyber, you know, we started in, our, in cybersecurity worrying about confidentiality of information. Those were our earliest concerns, theft of, of, of personal information, but also business information. Ransomware attacks began to raise the awareness about the implications of not having access to your data. And I think where we're heading is, is a better understanding of the implications of not being able to trust the integrity of data that you hold, and this issue of deep fakes is is part and parcel of mm -hmm. that, you know. And it and and uh, certainly, you know, what we see Russia doing and what we see Putin doing is attacking the concept of truth. And so this is a perfect perfect tool uh, for for Putin uh, to use to continue to undermine, uh, whether it's the media or the courts. Uh, uh, sources that we think purvey the truth to get us to where his population is, as you said, where they, they don't really believe in the concept of truth and they shrug their shoulders. Well, and again, I would argue uh, that is not a Russian-only phenomenon. You know, um, you know, when, I don't care again where you fall on the political spectrum, but where the documentation is overwhelming that on a daily basis, you know, half-truths and lies come out of the White House. When we accept that as the new normal, we play exactly into the, the you know, Russian playbook of where they want to head. Um, um, and 
that is, you know, again, regardless of where we fall on the political spectrum, that should be a concern to all of us. Yeah. Uh, so you referenced the Russian playbook, and my colleague Heather Conley here at CSIS uh, and her team put together the Kremlin playbook. Uh, and they talk about not just the uh, social media and, and, and other propaganda efforts, but as you know, and as you guys have looked into, uh, the ways in which uh, Russia is extending its influence through other means, particularly corruption, uh, and, and the places in which a lack of transparency uh, can contribute to that. Um, is that, are there things that we should do? You, you have talked about how when we see things overseas, we should get ready to see them here. Ukraine is a playground for, for Russia to practice uh, and test out the things they're gonna do here, for example. Um, when we see this happening in Central and Eastern Europe, are there things that we should be thinking about or your colleagues are thinking about to strengthen our, again, uh, resilience against those kinds of measures in terms of dark, greater transparency around dark money, campaign finance reform? Do you see vulnerabilities there? Well, yeah, I, of course I see vulnerabilities. It's, it's a little um, scourging at times when you know, Senator Klobuchar and I, along with the late Senator McCain, had legislation called the Honest Ads Act that basically said that for social media, you ought to have the same disclosure rules that you have for TV and radio. To me, that seems like, you know, if there was the ultimate no-brainer, um, but the majority leader doesn't want to ever touch anything as campaign finance reform. The White House didn't want it, so it hasn't become law. And so you, what you have then instead is you have half measures from the platform, the more responsible platform companies, where they said they will disclose, um, if they're political ads, but I'd, I'd cite three examples. One is, just recently, one of the news medias were basically able to place 100 political ads saying they were each of the individual senators, and none of the Facebook screening process caught any of them. So they all got placed, with, no, with all, none of them being authored by the actual senators, number one. Number two, you got a company like Google who won't, it hasn't even moved at all into the issue area. You know, they'll disclose if it says vote for Suzanne Spaulding, but if it says, you know, vote against any candidate that's ever worked in the national security apparatus, they wouldn't disclose that one. And then you have, even if you were to get, um, um, you know, better self-policing, uh, you know, where we saw with the, the massacre in, in Pittsburgh, where the hater there, you know, didn't go to a traditional platform, went to an alternative platform called Gab. So the idea that we're gonna self-regulate with only the big, the big guys just frankly doesn't cut it. Yeah. Um, so I'll ask one more question then we'll take the cards. Um, FISA, uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, is, uh, has got three provisions that are sunsetting at the end of 2019. Uh, I, I know your committee is starting to look at these issues already. The, uh, but interestingly, we are also seeing, again, Russian social media, Russian trolls uh, t uh, training their sites on FISA. And perhaps not surprisingly, given the controversy around the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, that's that, you know, arising and electronic surveillance arising from allegations of, of electronic <laughs> surveillance of Trump Tower and that uh, discussions around Carter Page and the FISA application there. Um, but, you know, again, how, uh, where is the committee on beginning to think about FISA we, and how concerned are you about 
again, not just Russia, but adversaries who would love to see FISA go down, for example, so, and, and they're, uh, weighing they're, in? Well, we haven't started, in, you know, after the Section 702 discussions a few years back, um, maybe a little more break would be fine, although, you know, the, you know, this goes again to um, making, Amer having Americans become better consumers of information they receive over the internet. And in many ways, um, you know, our delineation um, that we have in terms of how we do surveillance and others, you know, there's always ways we can improve and we have to make sure that we have appropriate privacy protections. But, you know, the, the fact that, that when Boris creates a fake identity uh, and calls themselves, you know, Gary from McLean, you know, we have a circumstance, as you know, that when Boris is acting in St. Petersburg, the CIA or the NSA will try to f follow that person's activities. Once Boris presses send and the, your message pops up on your device, all that information has to be thrown over the transom, and now it becomes the responsibility of DHS and FBI. Now, we should have these barriers and these visions. I, I strongly support them. But the extent to which the U.S. government goes to protect the identities of Americans and not have our external agencies actually look at American identity. Um, you know, I came to this with a relative open mind, you know, and, and you know, uh, more often than not, the, the protections really do work. And again, I go back to the point that um, um, these, these enterprises have so much more information about us than USG has about us. And one of my concerns as we kind of think about this in a geopolitical context as well is in China where you have a very aggressive government doing things around artificial intelligence, facial recognition, a host of other areas, and then you have the Alibaba's, Badu's, Tencent's et al. You know, all sharing that information with the Chinese government, you know, just the ability that China has to aggregate data in ways that are going to make it exponentially more than what we have is a, is a real challenge and threat and something, again, that we've not, not directly answering to your question, but, um, you know, on the to-do list has to be sorted through. Right, right. And, and certainly uh, among the threats that we need to be thinking about in the context of a debate about uh, what kind of powers the government mm -hmm. needs to have to combat those threats. Do we have some questions from the audience? Great, thank you. Okay. We realize the uh, judicial system is under-resourced to put in place adequate cybersecurity measures. Is this a federal or state obligation? What do you, what do you, how do you think Congress would feel about uh, resourcing not just the federal courts for which they appropriate money now, but just as they're helping state and local election officials with grant money uh, to assist, for example, state courts that are trying to deal with potentially nation state adversaries. They hold a lot of valuable mm -hmm. information. You know, I've not really thought about that much, but I think, uh, and there is a great reluctance, you know, from state judicial systems to have any kind of federal interference. Uh, but if we, if I can make the analogy to election systems, at first, you know, there was real pushback about 
the designation made by the Obama administration about election systems being critical infrastructure. But I think as evidence was shown, um, even some of the most conservative states in the country realized that they were in jeopardy. That you know, if you follow any of the kind of white hat hackathons uh, of, our, of our voting systems, it's pretty easy to break into these systems. So I could very easily envision you know, analogous to election systems where you, you could make federal monies available and the price of that federal money, you wouldn't have to take it, but the price of that federal money, again, with election systems would be to make sure, for example, that you have an auditable paper ballot trail, that you have some audit after the fact to see where you were good or you know, where you can improve circumstances going forward, where you've got, it doesn't have to be government, but some independent analysis of the, of the folks who manage your voter files to make sure there's not malware installed. I could see a similar type program, you know, as long as the, the country come up, come up with some minimum security standards of what state judicial systems should have to make federal funds available that you would only take if you could meet these minimum standards. But that's, that's a, um, not to again try, go off on a side tangent, but trying to set standards in this world is really hard. I mean, one of the things, one of the greatest vulnerabilities our country faces right now is as we move into the world where all our devices are connected to the internet, the so-called internet of things, we're at about 10 billion devices right now, we're gonna to go to 25 to 30 billion devices. By about 2021, we have no minimum security standards on any of those devices. From your refrigerator to your microwave to all the things in your car connected to the internet. You, know, you talk about dramatically increasing the surface vulnerability of cyber threats, and to try to get industry to agree on what those minimum security standards are, man, it's been a bear. Yeah, well, and, and you know, within such a dynamic uh, arena, it's really hard to figure out how you might legislate, even regulate, uh, with the glacial pace at which both legislation and regulation. Well, that's where you could set industry. You know, I, I don't mind having a front-end industry standard with a back-end of, of governmental. I mean, the, the model, it's not perfect, but the model that's in the securities industry, which has got a great deal of complexity in the front-end, where you have a... Um, uh, uh, what's it called? Firma, FINRA, uh, FINRA? FINRA. FINRA. FINRA is the industry front end, and then you've got a governmental entity in the back end. Maybe there's a model there. Right, right. Uh, something that's more flexible in the front end. But. Yeah, yep. And we've seen that in other contexts. Uh, mm -hmm. At DHS, we had the chemical facility anti-terrorism standards and uh, outcome-based regulation that included cyber, but based a lot on what the industry had yep. developed as voluntary standards. So we've got a couple questions here about the role of the individual and uh, NGOs and, and, and others, it, you know, given that uh, we're, we're not really seeing a whole of nation response being driven out of the White House uh, to the uh, uh, influence operations and, uh, and that the, so, the, the social media platforms, you know, your, your sense is they're making progress, but, um, but maybe can't be expected to take this all the way. What is the responsibility of the individual uh, here um, and uh, and it is interesting as we've been doing this work and, and talking to folks uh, you would think that simply telling them look this came from Russia uh, might be enough for them to discount something that they read or or an event that they've been invited to and again what we've seen is that's not always the case mm -hmm. um, so so again what is you know how you talked about uh, uh, civics education, um, you know, is, is, is there, do we have a, a need to kind of re 
energize the American public about the value of democracy, why we should care about this, why it makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely, but it almost has to be done not in the 20th century, century frame, but more in a 21st century frame. And it needs to be, in a sense, digital civics education. Because we're not going to change the notion that people are going to become enormous consumers of information, generally driven by your personalized device, and that's going to only get you know, more challenging as it goes along. So how do you become better consumers of information? It, it's hard. It, it also needs to be returned, um, and, and, and this is one of my grave concerns about this White House, is that, uh, um, I mean, there's n never been a president of either party that's ever been as loose with the truth as this White House. And if you create that as a new normal, um, once that genie comes out of the bottle, you can't legislate and say, we're going to go back to where facts were really facts. And I don't think anybody, I don't think any of us have, uh, have fully sorted that through. And, and you know, because acknowledging that there is, frankly, one of the comments I make fairly regularly is, you know, neither Fox nor MSNBC tell you the whole truth. But it's easier to default to um, reinforcing views and you know, how, you, how you encourage Americans to become consumers of views that don't necessarily fully align with what they think is a really naughty problem, but, a hard, but one we've got we to gotta figure out. Really important. Yep. Thank you, Senator. You're, and you're, uh, you've never been shy about tackling the difficult problems, so we, we look forward well, to it. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank all thank of you for, for being here. You know, and the main thing is um, you know, the fact that you're here is all a reflection that you, you are interested. Um, I do think this is not uh, an American-only problem. Um, if you look at elections across the world, if you look at the move towards authoritarianism and strongman rule in many countries, uh, you know, this, audit, this is a common fight uh, that we have. And, and we all need to be, you know, and by no means, um, let me make clear, I don't think the politicians have got all the answers. If you've got ideas, suggestions uh, on, on how we sort this out, you know, I'm wide open for business. So with that, thank Perfect. you very much. Thank you very much. <clears throat> thank you, sir. Thank you.